Six months, seven days until Christmas. I, mean, I, I know it's Father's Day and everything, but it's, it's all right to catch the midpoint and really mark that. We're in the book of Acts, which is really about the birth of the church. Christmas, the season, about the birth of Christ. What I want you to see, and why I'm wearing this annoyingly warm hat on what's already a very warm day, is how closely the two are linked how an understanding of the birth of Jesus really helps us really understand the birth of the church, and also how the birth of the church shapes our understanding of what the coming of Christ was all about. Does that make some sense? No, it's just kind of silly seeing somebody wearing a Santa hat in June, isn't it? Well, listen, let's try and unpack it a little bit. I'll have you open your Bibles with me. We're in the book of Acts again in chapter 2, and we're going to read the tail end of that chapter. Acts chapter 2, about the last seven verses or so. You with me there? Okay. Let's back up to verse 36 and catch the tail end of the message that we were looking at last week. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Out of that strong message emerged a new Christian community in the world, the likes of which the world had never seen. And the first description that we have of that begins in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together. They held everything in common They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray and then we'll we'll look at that passage together. God, this takes us back to the beginning, the beginning of our story, not just the story of, of Christ in our own lives, but the story, God, of the church in the world, of how you chose to move and mobilize a group of people, fallible and flawed and, and yet striving and yearning to be something more for the sake of those around them. God, we want to hear their story this morning. We want to receive it and understand it and and cherish it, and and see the ways that it will challenge us and shape us. So God, through your Spirit, take the words of your Scripture and allow them to do their work in our lives, we pray. Amen. What I'd like you to notice as we glance through those few short verses is what it is exactly about that early Christian community that made them so different 
from the wider culture around them because there was something startlingly different about them. And then in, in going just a little bit further, to ask the question, what was the source of the difference? So first question, what is it that made them different? And secondly, what is the reason? Let's look through, and if you have your notes, you can pull them out. And there you see three of the, the descriptive words that we're going to use to try and understand what made them different. Here's the first one. It's the word devotion. You notice it in verses 40 and 41. It talks about the very first day, as a result of that sermon, 3,000 people brought together into the church, brought into faith, something that we know. This is just a, a simple historical fact. Christianity grew explosively. It grew to the point where it actually displaced the existing culture. The, the Greco-Roman Empire, with, with all of its might, with all of its reach, was eventually eroded, not from outside, from conquest, but from within, by, by a gentle, loving culture that grew up inside of it. Why? It's because those first Christians, that early Christian community, as they grew, were attractively different. Lots of people are different, but in this case, they were different in a way that was attractive to the world around them. And, uh, and that difference is suggested in that very first line in verse 42, where it says, they devoted themselves. You see it there? They devoted themselves. In the Bible, the word devote just means to give something away. Kind of means the same thing in English, doesn't it? They, they devoted themselves. They set it apart. They, they gave it away. In fact, some translations, maybe the one that you have in front of you, say literally in verse 42, they gave themselves away. They gave themselves away to learning. They gave themselves to fellowship, to a number of practices that you see. But beneath all of them, they gave themselves away to God and to each other. It's that, that giving away, that generosity of life and of spirit that was markedly different, uh, that was attractively different, that grew up like a, I don't know, like a flower amidst the weeds of the empire and eventually replaced it. In other words, what what made Christianity, the Christian community, so different in that early stage of its life was the fact that they were, they were radically and counterculturally unselfish. It pervaded everything that they did. Radical unselfishness. That's the passage or the principle you see in the passage. Look down at verse 44. It says, all the believers were together. They held everything in common. They sold their possessions and their goods. They gave it away. To those who are in need. It was one of the striking things in that culture. Lucian of Samosata. Yeah, who? <laughs> Lucian of Samosata, one of the early Greek philosophers, a, a, a vociferous opponent to early Christianity. He disliked it. He disliked everything it stood for. He disliked what it was about. But he's also descriptive. And one of the reasons, or one of his writings, talk about the reasons why so many people were offended by Christianity. People in power. They took great offense to it. This is what he says about Jesus. Their founder taught them that they should be like brothers to each other. Imagine that. And therefore they should despise their own privacy and view their possessions as common property. And they disdained that idea. We see it right here. Instead of being selfish about their goods and property and power, they not only share with each other, but they shared with those in need. 
And by the way, we're going to see as we go further into the book of Acts that this wasn't, this wasn't communism, not literal communism. They didn't give all of their assets and put them into a common purse and then get a salary from a central, central committee. That's, that's communism. This is spiritual community, radically unselfish. And when it came to possessions and goods, the, the word that keeps coming up is together. They, they did this together. It says in verse 44, all the believers were together. Every day they continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together. Remember who they were again? The church was formed on the day of Pentecost, not a Christian holiday, a Jewish holiday, one that saw people come from all over the known world to gather in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's ranks swelled to two, three, four times the normal population. People of different cultures, different languages, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, all brought together. And that togetherness was something that marked the early Christian community. They were all together. And as you read on in the book of Acts, you'll see that it's not just Jewish cultures from all over the world. In Acts 13, by the time you get there, you see it's, it's African and Asian and Greek and Roman and all being together, radically together. There was nothing like it in the world. You could argue that there's still nothing like it in the world. So there was radical unselfishness, the, the willingness to give themselves away, not just time and money, but, but to give to each other in this togetherness. That's what formed the foundation of the early Christian community. Now, we've probably come far enough that, that it's time to stop and say, well, is that really that different? I mean, is, is it really that unique? Surely in the world at the time, there were other examples of that kind of togetherness, that, that kind of community living, that, that kind of of non-tribal relating to each other. I want you to listen, if, if you have a minute or two, to, to the writings of one of the centuries, last century's great historians, Kenneth Scott Latourette, one of the great uh, students of Christian history. What it is, he said, that was so different and so electrifying about early Christianity, why it spread, he said, is essentially this, and he makes a list. He writes, this is the reason for Christianity's success. More than any of its competitors or adversaries, Christianity attracted all races and classes. Judaism never quite escaped its racial bonds. Christianity gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, to Greek and barbarian. Greek and Roman philosophies, Lateret writes, never really won the allegiance of the masses. They appealed primarily to the educated, to the morally and socially cultured. Christianity drew the lowly and the unlettered, developed a philosophy of its own which commanded the respect of many, including the educated. It was for both sexes, whereas two of its main rivals were primarily for men. And the church welcomed both rich and poor. And here's his conclusion. No other religion took so many groups, so many different strata of society. And the question must be raised why this unprecedented comprehensiveness came to appear in the world in Christianity. And that's the question I want to press with you for a minute. 
this unprecedented comprehensiveness that came into the world. What's the reason? If that's what was attractively different, why was it so different? It's not easy for us to answer because it's always hard for us to transcend our own historical and cultural moment. We, we assume that the world that we live in today is the world as it was in their day. There's no escaping that. Uh, we look at things from where we are right now. But if we look back and say, was it really so different? Historians will tell you it certainly was, and they'll say several things. Here's the first. The idea, that familiar verse, the idea that you should love your enemies was absolutely unknown in the world. You should kill everyone who wrongs you. That was the rule of the day. The idea that you should forgive indefinitely, that you should try and reconcile with enemies instead of exacting revenge, that idea that first came from Christianity, no other culture, no other philosophy, no other system of thought produced that. Here's the second thing. There were other philosophies and and maybe other religions that gave passing thought to the idea that we should take care of the poor. But there was an energy coming out of Christianity that was unprecedented. Christians invented hospitals. They invented orphanages. They invented poverty relief. Thirdly, and this is, I mean, this is so hard, I think, to escape our own context to realize, but thirdly, the very idea of universal human rights, that every human being, regardless of race or class, no matter how weak or no matter how talented, how physically disabled or how physically strong, every human being had value and worth and the right to be treated with dignity and respect. Where did that come from? It came from Christianity. It wasn't invented when a group of fathers penned those words in a constitution. It was invented when the Heavenly Father sent the Eternal Son to teach the world about the prized value of human life. It's an idea that historians now have pretty much proven and acknowledged came uniquely out of Christianity, didn't emerge in any other cultural context, didn't come out of religion, It came out of this little band of Jesus followers in the first century. And when those early missionaries went out and talked about about loving God and loving your enemies and forgiving people and caring for the weakest of society, including the poor, it wasn't just the Greek and the Roman elites, people like that Lucian of Samosata that we read a second ago. It wasn't just the tribal chiefs and kings of of pre-Christian Europe that greeted them with scorn and derision. When Christian missionaries went out and the elites heard all this idea, they said, this is crazy. Any society based on these values will fail, will fall apart. They said, for example, a society based on the idea of respect for strength is one that will last. But if they see leaders forgiving instead of taking revenge, things will fall apart. Besides, the talented and strong have always been the ones who triumph. The strong eat the weak. That's the nature of things. I thought it was crazy. But like, I don't know, you've watched as water chips away at a rock. In that way, the ideals of Christianity began to chip away at the hard exterior of the world. 
All human beings have dignity, including the poor. All people must be loved, including your enemies. You should live a life of unselfish service. Those became social ideals, not just religious ideas. They triumphed. That's the reason those ideas make some sense to us today. When they made no sense, when Jesus first spoke them, they came from the lips of that rabbi in Nazareth, from nowhere else. And let's ask that question again. Do you wonder why? Why is it that Christianity to produce these ideas, that Christianity brought them to maturity, brought them to the human race and into the world? Well, at least one answer to that question is Christmas. When Jesus was about to die, he prayed a prayer in front of his disciples. And, and here's just one part of it. He's praying to his heavenly Father. He says, you sent me into the world. You sent me into the world. That's Christmas. Jesus was the Son of God who came into the world, born as a human being, born in a manger. He says, you sent me into the world. Then he says, for their sake, I sanctify myself. There's a word that means I devote myself. You sent me into the world, Father, and I devote myself. I give myself away for their sake. And that's what he did. Born into the world. That's Christmas. Left all the greatness and all the power that he was due behind. What's happening at Christmas? He's giving himself away. He's taking his hands off his own life. He's devoting himself, emptying himself of, of all glory and majesty so that so that we could become something beautiful. Becoming as one of no reputation, the Bible says. So that we could have a name with God for all eternity. Rejected by everyone. So that we could be loved. And live with God and live with other people. Now, when Jesus did this, and Christians came to understand this is what he was doing, you know what it meant. No other religion before or since, no other philosophy has ever said that God gave himself away. That that's the heart of ultimate reality. Not holding on to your power or your wealth or your glory, but giving it away. Giving yourself for others. If, if God did that at Christmas, this is radical. It's astounding. If God would come to earth, become weak and mortal and die and atone for our sins, if he would devote himself in that way, it changes everything. Maybe to stay with the Christmas theme for just a second. You, you know that beautiful carol that goes like this? Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. That's the idea. Giving himself away to lay aside your glory, your honor, your interest. It's the heart of what happened at Christmas. And it's the very heart of what happened when Christians understood the gospel. When they understood Christmas, the incarnation, God in flesh. They begin to practice the incarnation, giving themselves away. They brought ideas into the world that no one had ever seen before because they were convinced that that's what ultimate reality looked like. God is a God who gave himself away. Let's spend our last few minutes be talking about what that looks like practically. Here's the first thing. If you lay your glory aside, like Jesus did, one of the things it means is that you need to get involved with the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. You have to. 
No sense arguing about it. It's not beneath you. You become unselfish with your ego and with your things and your time. Secondly, to lay your glory by means means like Jesus, you're not condescending. Listen, I know and, and you know that there's all kinds of klutzy, awkward people in the world. There are foolish people in the world. There are irritating people in the world. Maybe you're listening to one right now. There are people for whom spending time with them does nothing for your reputation or your resume. In fact, you may be scorned and derided just for spending time with them. But you need to do it anyway. They don't help you in any way. They don't know anyone. They don't open any doors for you. You live in the GTA. You want to move with the movers. Spend time with people who can help you and all that. But if you're a Christian, you know that you are saved through the infinite descent of Christ from highness to lowness. Now, how in the world then can we ever come across as condescending to anyone else, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter what their pedigree? No more condescending. Here's the third thing. It means when you see opponents or just people that you flat out don't like, people who have the wrong politics, the wrong orientation, the wrong religion even, if you know what Christ has done, if you see him on the cross still dying and forgiving his enemies, even as they're killing him, that's going to affect how you live. How in the world... If you, if you honor that sacrifice, can you go to a website and leave some of the, the worst and nastiest and most vitriolic comments that you could ever imagine? I've stopped really going to a lot of Christian forums because I'm embarrassed at what Christians say on Christian forums. Lastly, to lay aside your glory means that you don't worry about, I guess the, the biblical word is face. You don't worry about face, about saving face, about establishing your own honor and esteem in the world. It means when you have a problem with someone, someone else bothers you, you have a, a tiff with them, you let go of your own glory. So often we want to dig in and say, I was right. I was right. And I'm not giving up until everybody acknowledges that I was right. If they want to make peace, let them come make peace with me. Let them make the first move. No, you, you lay your glory by. Maybe I too was in the wrong. I'm sorry. What can we do to make things right instead of needing to claim that we were right? If you grasp that cosmic reality of Christmas, that God gave himself away, it turns you into a different kind of person. And there are a group of people that did that 21 centuries ago, and it changed the world. Let me end with this. Um, on any given Sunday, I know that we're a, a great mix of people, and and at all different start, starting places on this on this journey of faith. So let me say something to those of you who may still be exploring, maybe still skeptical about some parts of Christianity. And then I'll say something to those of you who are not. But for those 
who maybe are still skeptical. You might be saying, huh, this, this idea, these concepts, human rights, loving your enemies, not exacting revenge, came, through the, came into the world through Christianity. I, I'd never thought of that. I'll check it out. I'm not sure I agree with you. I'll check it out. Please do that. Please do that. But if you say, even if I like those ideals, it doesn't mean I need to believe in the one who brought them into the world. I need to believe in Jesus. Of course you don't. You don't have to. It's, it's a free country. You, you don't have to be consistent in that way. But I do want you to think about it. Where did those ideals come from? Do you think the early church just sat around saying, let's be, let's be really nice. That'll change the world. That'll get us traction. Let's be the nicest people the world has ever seen. Let's create humanitarianism. No. They gripped the fact that the one they had known and loved had given himself away so completely and in doing it had described ultimate reality. And they began to live out of that reality. If you if you like the practices of the early church, let me suggest that, that you need to believe in the truth of the early church, the facts on which the practices are based. And if you don't believe that, that Jesus Christ has God come to earth, if you don't believe that, or if you believe that the world is just kind of a, an unpredictable accident of circumstances and random forces... I'm not sure anyone or any group that believes that are going to be able to sustain the practices of the early church for very long. Probably why, for all these centuries, the vanguard of, of humanitarian effort in the world has always had Christians at the front. And lastly, a word for those of you who who do look to Christ and look to that kind of church and are astounded by it, I, I want you to observe the balance that's there. Have a look through the description there one last time. It says, they followed the apostles' teaching. Good theology. A mark of the church. They, they were good Presbyterians. Like that? They had dynamic worship, praising God all the time. Hmm, sounds a little bit like they're Pentecostals. They had intimate fellowship, breaking bread with each other all the time, and, and radical, persistent evangelism. Every day, people were getting converted. You see that? Now they sound like Baptists. <laughs> but they were also going around sharing what they had with those most in need. Now they sound like Salvation Army people. And guess what? A really great, spirit-filled church does all of those things. And if we do all of those things we will be more and more conformed into the image of the one who gave himself for us. So let's pray. And then I'm going to give us a challenge. And then we're going to pray through that. God, that vision of your church coming to grips with ultimate reality, with the nature of your character, of your devotion, of your commitment to human beings despite our weakness and our fallibility and our tendency to violence and, and harm. Now that commitment has shaped a force which 
has influenced the world for better now for, well, for 2,100 years almost. We want it to shape and influence our lives and, and the work of your church here. God, where there are deeper convictions that need to be formed, let it happen now. Where there's enthusiasm that needs to be renewed, let it come now. Where there are systems of belief that, that need to be pushed and, and stretched, let that happen now. And where there are lives that need to come face to face with ultimate reality, let it happen now. Let it happen in me, in each of us, we pray. Amen.